Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. I have to say, uh, um, last night was the first time I've ever spoken here before. And when Bert first asked if I would like to take one of the weekends he was gone, uh, I had an out-of-body experience. <laughs> I could clearly see and hear myself saying, sure, I'd love to. Yet at the same time, I was screaming, what are you doing? What are you saying? You can't do that. And the truth is, I can't. It's only God that provides the strength and the power. So I'm very um, honored and blessed to be here this morning and to bring the word of God that he's placed on my heart today. And a few years ago, our brother Dave led the uh, men of the congregation through a Bible study by John Snyder called Behold Your God. And in the study, he challenged us each week as we began the study with this challenge. Are you willing to adjust your life to what God reveals himself in the next coming days? What I found interesting about this statement is that I often think of God's revelation to me as something he wants me to do or maybe to be. This could be whether to accept a new job or share my faith with any number of people I encounter during the day. It could be a missions opportunity to Zambia, which I hear one's coming up here soon. Or a particular area of my life that needs to change. There's certainly no end to the things I could do or should be doing to advance God's kingdom here on earth. Although God does reveal himself in these types of things, they're not the focus of his revelation. The focus is always himself. He wants to reveal himself to us because he desires us to know him, to love him, to commit our lives to him, to put our trust in him. As the Proverbs tells us, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Sadly, I often rely on my own understanding and strength, doing what I think God wants me to do. You may remember a song that Larnell Harris sang back in the mid-1980s titled, I Miss My Time With You. The words of this song convict me of my misguided thinking and my need for him in my daily life. I'd like to read the words for you. There he was just sitting in our old familiar place, an empty spot beside him where I once used to wait to be filled with strength and wisdom for the battles of the day. I would have passed him by again if I didn't hear him say, I miss my time with you, those moments together I need to be with you each day 
And it hurts me when you say you're too busy. Busy trying to serve me. But how can you serve me when your spirit's empty? There's a longing in my heart wanting more than just a part of you. It's true I miss my time with you. What will I have to offer? How can I truly care? My efforts have no meaning when your presence isn't there. But you'll provide the power if I take time to pray. I'll stay right here beside you and you'll never have to say, I miss my time with you. Knowing now that God's focus of his revelation to us is himself, how and what we think of God is of the greatest importance when considering how we live our lives. John Bunyan, author of Pilgrim's Progress, wrote, God is the only desirable good. Nothing without him is worthy of our hearts. The life, the glory, the blessings, the soul-satisfying goodness that is in God are beyond all expression. And the prophet Jeremiah declares in chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast in wisdom, and let not a mighty man boast in strength. Let not a rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. To understand and know God then becomes our life ambition. It is through our quest to know God that we begin to understand what motivated the psalmist to write, Great is the Lord and highly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. And Paul in Romans, oh, how depths, how the depths of the riches both of wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. You probably know and heard of Johnny Erickson Tata, who was a Christian author who became a paraplegic as a result of a diving accident when she was a young girl. When she was talking about her experience with God, she writes, one of the most wonderful things about knowing God is that there's always so much more to know. Just when we least expect it, he intrudes into our neat and tidy notions about who he is and how he works. One aspect of God's character I'd like to share with you today is his holiness. So let's go back to our challenge. Are you willing to adjust your life to whatever God reveals himself in the next coming days? One way God reveals us to himself is as a holy God. He declares in scripture then that we too are to be holy. In Leviticus 27 and 8, we read, Consecrate yourselves, therefore, 
and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. And you shall keep my statutes and perform them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. And in verse 26, Thus you are to be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy, and I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. Peter echoes this in 1 Peter 1.15. But like the Holy One who called you, be your holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So what then does it mean to be holy? The current version of the American Heritage Dictionary defines holy as, and I'm paraphrasing, being connected to a god or a religion and being, being religious and morally good. And you can see from that definition that man's definition of holy is woefully inadequate to describe what it means to be holy from God's perspective. We often associate holiness with God. We sometimes also think of holiness as moral living doing or not doing a certain thing, acting a certain way, living a certain lifestyle. Being holy does involve these things, but it goes much deeper. To be holy, we are called to obedience to God. We're to put aside our former lives in sin and prepare ourselves in mind and body for his service. Let's go back and read 1 Peter 1.15 in context, beginning with verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit, fixing your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Yeshua the Messiah. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves and also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Living a religious and moral life, at least by the world's standards, may or may not portray holiness by God's standards. You've heard people say to them of themselves, I'm a good person, that's all that matters. They may even go so far as to say they don't do anything wrong. You may have heard of Ray Comfort, who is a Christian evangelist, and he's known for his street interviews where he asks people, are you a good person? And most of them answer that they believe they are good. So he then walks them through the Ten Commandments and asks them after each one, have you ever broken this commandment? And they're forced to admit that they're liars, thieves, adulterers, and so on. By God's standards, no one is good. And God's word clearly reveals this picture. In Romans, quoting from Isaiah, says, There is none righteous, not even one. 
There is none who understands. There is none who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Isaiah goes even further by saying, For all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteousness, righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And all of us wither like a leaf. All our wrongdoings, like the wind, take us away. In contrast to this worthless condition, when the rich young ruler asked Yeshua, or addressed Yeshua as a good teacher, he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Was Yeshua saying that he was not good? No, absolutely not. But he was challenging the young man's thinking of him. He believed Yeshua to be a good rabbi, but he may not go so far as believing him to be God. Yeshua's statement may have been encouraging the rich young ruler to acknowledge him as God. I can almost imagine Yeshua's thoughts. You're almost there. Just open your eyes and see who I am. Sadly, the man could not see beyond his great wealth and see the Savior and the one who could provide the eternal life he sought. So then, if we are not good and righteous, then how can we be holy as God is holy? To understand this and the true meaning of holiness. We need to go back to the source of holiness. We must begin with God. The root of God's holiness is his separateness from all other things. God alone is the only uncreated being in the universe. He created all things for his glory and honor. He is perfectly righteous and not tainted by sin. Paul Washer, an American Protestant Christian evangelist, writes, God is separate from and transcendent above all his creation. And he is separate from and transcendent above his creation's corruption. As we read in our New Covenant portion this morning, the saints sang the song of Moses. Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. We've already read that none are holy but God alone. There is none who do good. So how are we to be holy? First, we're holy because we're associated with God. He has called us out to be his own. This is not dependent on our own righteousness or goodness, but on his. 
I heard an analogy of this about a man with ten lambs. He dedicates one of the, one for a sacrifice to the Lord. The lamb hasn't changed. It's merely separated unto God. He now has nine common lambs and one holy lamb. In the same way, we as believers are separated unto God for his good pleasure. Throughout the New Testament, believers are called saints and holy ones. Despite their struggles and the condemnation of their sins in the author's letters, this reveals an important distinction in our relationship with God. It is our position with God, not our condition before him that matters. When one of our daughters was very young, she declared to us one day, God hates the sin, but he loves the senator. We had to laugh at that innocent word mistake. But we were astonished that such a young one could grasp such truth. God loves us despite of our sinful condition. As we read in Ephesians 1.4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in his love. And in Colossians 1, 22 and 23, 22, 1 and 22. And although we were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. So we're reconciled to God through Yeshua's death and resurrection. God now sees us through Yeshua's righteousness and not our sinfulness. But God doesn't stop there. Merely changing our position before him is not enough. He has given us his spirit to teach us and guide us in the way that he has called us. Ezekiel describes this transformation. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. John Snyder, again the author of Behold Your God, writes, Holiness flows out of being brought near to God in his love and lovingly walking with him in obedience from gratitude for what he has done. This is not to say that we don't struggle with sin, but that in Messiah we're never the same. God's sanctifying work has begun, and our lives are changed forever. His work in our lives continues. One way God works in our lives to bring about holiness is through trials. This draws us out of ourselves, out of our sinful nature, and into his perfect will. As I look back on my life, I can see God's hand of providence working. Yet each new trial brings new fears. And I wonder, Lord, 
When am I ever going to get it right? When am I ever going to learn to trust you completely? It's in these times that the devil tries to discourage by saying, you're never going to get it right. You're not worthy because of your, your lack of faith and trust. I look at the trials of my life and realize they're minor compared to many others. I've not yet been tested with my life or that of my family. I've not yet been told to deny my Lord. This last October, when we went to Texas for the persecuted church conference, I was astonished by the testimonies of believers in countries like China and North Korea and Iran. These strong Christians gave their all for our Lord and suffered incredible persecution from beatings to long prison sentences under unimaginable conditions. Yet they all had tremendous joy to be persecuted for the faith of Messiah. Some of them would be let out of prison and almost immediately get arrested again for sharing their faith. They truly lived out the scripture, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Job experienced an imaginal tragedy, losing all his possessions, including the lives of all his children. Yet he was able to say, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him, but I will maintain mine own ways before him. And J J James, writing about Job, says, We count those blessed who endured. You have heard the endurance of Job, and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. A few years ago, we had a visiting worship leader here at Roa, and he challenged us that too often we are focused on being delivered from the trials and the bad things in life, and we fail to praise and thank God for the good. Every breath we take is a gift from Yeshua, our Messiah, who sustains us. Acts 17, 28 says, For in him we live and move and have our being. Paul in Colossians 1 writes, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And in Hebrews 1, which we say in our liturgy every Shabbat morning, the sun is the full radiance of God's glory and the flawless manifestation of his reality. He sustains all things by his powerful word. After he made atonement for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. If we merely attempt to thank God for every breath, we would have no time for anything else, not to mention all of the other blessings we receive every day. He has also given us the gift of salvation and eternal life with him. From this perspective, we have much more to be thankful for than the trials that we face. You may remember a simple little praise song from the 1990s called Give Thanks that goes like this. Give thanks 
with a grateful heart. Give thanks to the Holy One. Give thanks because he has given Jesus Christ his Son. And now let the weak say, I am strong. Let the poor say, I am rich. Because of what the Lord has done for us, give thanks. This simple little song embodies one of the secrets of being holy to God. The psalmist understood this secret all too well. As we read through scriptures, we see David going through just about everything imaginable. From fighting lions and bears while tending his father's flocks, fighting and killing a giant who was threatening Israel. Being anointed next king of Israel while Saul was still on the throne. Becoming king of Israel. Committing adultery and murder. Yet he is called a man after God's own heart. David's life should be of great encouragement to all of us. If he, with all his failings, can be called a man after God's own heart, then so can I. David poured out his heart to God. He cried out for deliverance from his enemies. Throughout the Psalms, we see David going through tremendous struggles and trials. But we see him at the same time praising and giving thanks to God. Here are just a few of my favorite ones. Psalms 30, verses 4 and 5. Sing praise to the Lord, you his godly ones, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. In Psalm 79, 13. So we, your people, and the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. To all generations, we will tell of your praise. And in Psalms 104 and 5. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name, for the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting and his faithfulness to all generations. I find that when I focus on giving God praise and thanking for, for all he has done and continues to do, I have less time to worry about what might be going on in my life. Hebrew compares praise and thanksgiving to sacrifice. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips. Give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. We also have God's promise to always be with us and never forsake us. And that he will never let us be tested above our ability to bear. And James writes in his landmark statement regarding trials in our lives. Consider it all joy, brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result 
so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And I find it very encouraging that the joy spoken about does not come at the end of the trial, but as we encounter them. In the midst of them, Paul and Silas experienced this when in prison. They were flogged and thrown into prison in shackles. Yet despite their pain and suffering, they found strength to pray and sing praises to God. As the other prisoners listened, an earthquake shook the jail. The doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. Because of Paul and Silas' example of faithfulness, not one of the prisoners escaped. As a result, the jailer and his entire household were saved. We don't always understand why God lets us go through trials, and sometimes we don't even see the end results. Sometimes we complain to God just as the Israelites complained to Moses about their conditions after they left Egypt. Although God, with miraculous signs and wonders, delivered them from slavery in Egypt, and his presence went before them in a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night, they were still afraid when Pharaoh and his armies came after them. They complained that Moses brought them out of Egypt to die even though they were dying in Egypt. While they were trapped between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army, Moses declared to his people, Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will perform to you today. For the Egyptians you have seen today, you will never see them again, ever. The Lord will fight for you, while you keep silent. And God did deliver them through the sea on dry land, and he totally destroyed the Egyptian army. We have confidence then that in every circumstance, God is working in and through us for his glory and for our good. Paul writes in Romans, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Several years ago, our family came through a crisis and experienced God's deliverance firsthand. I happened to be listening to a radio station on my way to work and heard a, friend, a program called Johnny and Friends. I don't know if anyone remembers that. Yeah. Johnny Erickson Todd of the host has, is an amazing story. She was in a diving accident as a young girl, and she, um, she uh, had a diving accident and became a paraplegic. And she's devoted her life to helping people with disabilities and to share her faith. Interestingly enough, I had never listened to this program before this time but God knew that I needed it right then. She read a poem that a friend had given her just shortly after her accident. 
and it hit me right between the eyes and helped me to see a little clearer how God does work in our lives. And it's titled, When God Wants to Drill a Man. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed. Watch his methods, watch his ways, how he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects, how he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay, which only God understands while his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands, how he bends but never breaks, how his good he undertakes, how he uses whom he chooses, and which every purpose fuses him by every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. And Paul gives us this excellent promise. For I am con confident in everything that he who has begun a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Messiah Yeshua. And so I leave you with this challenge for the week. Are we willing to adjust our lives to whatever God reveals of himself in the next coming days? Father, in Yeshua's name, we just give praise and glory and honor to you. We thank you, Father, for the work you do in our lives. We thank you, Father, for this body of believers that we can come together and worship and praise you. And we ask, Father, the blessing on each one here. Father, as we contemplate your working in our lives and what your plan is for us, Father. Please keep us ever mindful of you and not what's going on around us. And we just give you praise and glory and honor. In Yeshua's name, amen.